This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. I first saw REM, a film about the eponymous architect by Thomas Kulhas, a while before it premiered in 2016 at the Venice Film Festival. Venice, of course, plays an important part in the narrative of the film, for it's where the Rotterdam-based Office for Metropolitan Architecture, Kohlhaas's long-standing practice, curated and constructed the seminal 2014 Biennale. Prior to a screening of the film in GSAP's Wood Auditorium, Thomas and I, James Taylor Foster, sat down to discuss conception, construction and the reception of the picture. So maybe you could start off with explaining a little bit about how this project came about. You know, there's obviously a relationship between you and the protagonist of the film, but also biopics or, let's say, human interest films about people in architecture are quite rare. So maybe you could give some kind of rundown about how it all began. Even before I was into film, I would go to the buildings of REM and, you know, see them at different phases of construction, like, and even at the office, see them before they were made and see some of the ones that unfortunately weren't even made. I've seen that whole process, of course, since I was a kid. And even before I had kind of that uh, paradigm or that language to think about of cinema, I was always thinking about weird scenes that could be happening in the buildings. And actually, some of them were actually weird scenes that were happening just in front of me, or touching scenes, or interesting scenes. And what interested me was, strangely enough, never what everyone else was showing about these projects, or what interested everyone else, you know, and especially architects. I'm, I'm not an architect, and I've never wanted to be an architect, and I don't want to be an architect. I have no pretensions of that whatsoever. I know I'm not even an expert in architecture. And so the way I look at these things is much more from a humanistic perspective, and so all of the kind of really dense hypothetical jargon and all of these things and the sort of ideological ideas, which I think is very big in architecture now, is not what interested me, number one, because I you know, wasn't imbued with that at an architecture school. I was just a human being coming in looking, what's interesting here? You know, a very visual person, someone who'd later become a cinematographer. Like I said, I didn't have that language or that paradigm to see it from, but I was always thinking along those lines without even realising it. So when I went to film school, it was just one of those things. It was kind of a no-brainer. Everyone's like, oh, this is your dad. People find out eventually. I never tell people, but they, you know, as soon as Google came about, it became harder to go fly under the radar. So um, they would say, you know, you should make a film about your dad. It was kind of an obvious thing. So... At first, I moved to L.A. and I went to film school and I did this thing completely on my own and completely separate from anyone I knew, separate from my family, separate from anyone else. And I didn't want to immediately take that and then do something about my dad. And also, at first, this was in 2001 when I just you know started and went to the school and graduated... I didn't want that to be my first project. I didn't feel ready for that to be my first project. And also I knew Rem's not the kind of person, and you probably know this from your experience from him, that he'll just give you a chance because of who you are. If, I, if I'd gone to Rem with uh, a concept that wasn't 100% on point and something that he thought was interesting and important for people to know, he wouldn't have gone with it. He literally said no immediately. So all of these things kind of started to happen gradually. So in film school, the idea started to be kicked about just because it's obvious, you know, you're a filmmaker, Rem's your dad, you should make a film. 
but it took longer and it took um, 12 years of me working as a cinematographer on all kinds of different projects music videos, short films uh, narrative feature films some documentaries and then I became, you know, number one, ready and ready to do it, number one, but also ready to go to REM with a concept and an idea. And the concept that I had was based on kind of the, what I saw when I was young and, and all these stories that I noticed and enjoyed that other people weren't showing. So I'd always thought this kind of side of REM that I see and this kind of side of the buildings that I see is what... I find the most interesting, but it's also the least explored. It's the one thing that no one ever knew about, you know, not in books, not in uh, existing documentaries, TV shows, nothing. So it was kind of very obvious to me. I'm just going to do what hasn't been shown and what I find the most interesting, but also just coincidentally, in a way, the thing that I found most, most interesting exploration. I'm a complete novice when it comes to, to films, right? But when I watched it, it, it occurred to me that there is obviously the key protagonist, who the, the, the eponymous protagonist of the film, Rem himself. Then there is, by extension, the practice, Office of Metropolitan Architecture. But then the most interesting protagonists right. are the buildings. Right. And of course, I've seen the majority, I've experienced the majority of the buildings that you film, but I was seeing them in a completely new way. The, the, the sequence in the Casa de Musica in Porto, for example, maybe you could explain what that scene is very roughly and how it came about, because I think it's kind of key to the whole narrative of the film. It was one of those things that happened very organically. I was, again, before I was even very serious or uh, in any kind of linear process of thinking about making a film, I went to the Casa de Musica and I just looked around and I thought, there's something very interesting about these angles. And what it was is that they seemed very ambiguous. And it's been done in books and stuff like that afterwards, but I wasn't aware of it. And I, I realised that if you took a picture of these hallways and you flip them upside down, they work that way as well. Yeah. And so my immediate thought was, how could you show this space or explore this space in a way that's more interesting than taking a still photo and rotating it? Which is cool, but how could you really make use of these ambiguous sur surfaces? And the first thing was a, a free runner or a parkour. That's what they do. They take surfaces and they make walls look like... Uh, uh, or you know, a ceiling look like a wall, or a handrail look like a floor. You know, because they can use it in that way where you almost can't see where gravity's pulling them. Mm. So it was just to me uh, like really obvious. As soon as I walked through there, I thought, and like I said, I wasn't even making the film yet. I just thought it would be cool to see a parkour using this. Not let me film that. So all of those kind of ideas. Then when I made the film. It, it was it was not coincidence because those are the ideas that gave me the desire to make a film. But when I came to making a film, I had already realized. Then I I then realized that I already had these ideas had been fermenting about what would be interesting to put in there and how the usage would be interesting. So and with the Casa de Musica scene, it was that I feel like that's the only way to really show those surfaces. And one example is the uh, the foam spikes on the walls. Yeah. If you see a photograph of that, or even if you see footage of that, you think that's probably a plastic hard Solid. spike, right? So the only possible way you could really show a visceral, um, in a visceral way, show someone how that texture feels and what it's really like is to have a foot or hand or something 
compressing it and letting it decompress slowly. And so you can have someone just walk up to the wall and push it, but that doesn't, it, it cinematically that makes no sense and it seems bizarre and arbitrary. If you have a parkour flowing through the whole building that way, it's a cinematic rhythm and it makes sense and it's logical and it feels organic and then it shows you the whole building how it really is. I had never really dissected a film before and as I dissected it, um, especially in that opening opening sequence in the Casa de Musica, what you realise is there is this extremely powerful, almost operatic in the sense that it continues almost throughout the entire film, orchestral score, right. which really starts to tie and pull together it's essentially a sequence of chapters almost in the right. film. And so I wonder from your point of view, like as, as, a, as a director, as a cinematographer, you know, like how you started to compose these different elements, the music, right. the, the, you know, the photography. The first thing was the concept. And then um, once I had the concept of what I wanted to focus on and how I wanted to show it, then there was the idea that I wanted to not do it in a linear way and not have a narrator, not have it be mediated, have it be very direct. And if you do that, it changes the whole way you, you have to approach the film. Because it's, it, you know, and, and I'm not trying to be disparaging about any documentaries with narrators, because of course there's many awesome ones, but if you have that sort of narratorial structure, it's easier to incorporate different things. And you can basically incorporate anything because you just then create some kind of narrative where the narrator talks about it and introduces it. But that feels very removed. So what I had to do is basically come up with a completely different kind of structure. And the way I did that was thematically. So instead of doing having someone introducing, hey, this is this critic who likes Rem, this is this critic who dislikes Rem, this is his building, there's a few shots, here's someone who uses the building. It's more of like, here's an idea, this is Rem's take on the idea, here's some shots that help you understand that idea, here's someone else, their experience of that idea and then to the next theme, and the next theme, and the next theme. And so that's why I did that very specifically, with each section being a different concept. And, I mean, not everyone necessarily sees a correlation between each section and concept, but there's a definite building of the concept, and uh, each, each theme and each section leads sort of philosophically to the next, and they build upon each other until the end. And so... If you're going to have a structure like that, it's very important that you have some kind of rhythm, something tying it together, because otherwise it can feel disjointed. Because like I said, you don't have the narrator, you know, introducing things, smoothing things out, kind of creating transitions. Uh, so the music became very, very important. I had to approach it in a very different way. And it had to be specifically made in a way that, number one, would create that connection and that kind of through line and that kind of like you said kind of orchestral feeling where it's almost symphonic but also it had to do something else and and this is also very different from the average architecture documentary which is or documentaries in general is i wanted there's a term for uh in meditation called dropping in mm. i'm sure after spending time in america you're familiar with this <laughs> so um I, I, it was very important for me that the music wasn't just kind of a background thing, but it actually had um, an effect on the audience which changed how they perceived the film. 
and not just on an intellectual level but on a much more you know uh, physical level physiological level biological level and where they shifted from what people in like in buddhism and mindfulness for example call the doing brain into just the being brain and that's what we talked about briefly before it's kind of circumventing this whole overthinking culture of, yeah. of architectural overthinking and overcriticism yeah. and going for a more kind of subconscious experience and the music was integral to that and the the reason i chose murray hidari to do the score is because that's what he does he his main you know his main uh, performances are called um, mind travel so what he does is he plays. These are the ones on the beach. It's exactly. Some are on the beach, but they're you know he's done. He's doing. He did. I just recently filmed him doing an underwater one wow. in LA, and he's really taking it to the next level. He was he performed at Burning Man, um, so in the desert, underwater, on a, on a hike with speakers on a backpack. I mean, he's really being very experimental with what the concept of. You know, piano performance can be because traditionally it's just in a musty, stinky theater where you sit there and kind of uncomfortable, too close to people. And now, with you know, using wireless headphones, it can be part of a a vastly Mm. different experience. It can be part of you know, you can stand at the beach in the water and listen to his music, you know. So, he number one, he's very experimental and also has a similar approach to music as I do to film, which is to question everything and really figure out how things can feel differently rather than, you know, the appearance of it, for example. But he specifically tries to make music that allows you to reach a subconscious level and even forget about your kind of sense of self, let's say. And so I just happened to be invited to one of his shows and... I immediately, when I was there, knew that this is who I need to work with. Because if you could combine that real tapping into something very subliminal and very deep with the visuals and with the the concepts and that kind of thematic structure, I felt that it would really help people to, to delve into something that feels maybe unusual or uncomfortable and isn't so linear and obvious but also would create a very beautiful rhythm and, and kind of structure sonically. Absolutely. It, it is integral to the film. And I think, finally, the question I'd like to ask centres on the relationship between you and Rem on this particular project. And, you know, Rem is, is, is a kind of person who, who, if he's into a project, he's really into a project, right. you know, and he's got a lot to say about something. Right. Right. So, I mean, I wonder... Uh, how that relationship because it was over a period of years um there was a gradual evolution i imagine there was there were lots of time for reflection and 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 i imagine the editing process was was complex and uh i wonder how that how that relationship developed or was frayed or you know you you mean the relationship between me and him and his involvement in all of that exactly well that's the thing again talking about circumventing uh architectural overthinking i just didn't show him anything (laughs) <laughs> that was that was how I dealt with that, and and t- t- you know to his credit, Rem never in any way wanted any input into it. You know he's smart enough, you know, and uh, aware enough to know that if a film is about you, you're the absolute last person who should have any say in it. Um, so we both recognised that immediately, but also to avoid any potential risk of that, I just didn't show him anything. And if I did, it was you know one or two clips of the building, and that's it. I never showed him a single shot of himself. 
Um, that's also something you learn in film school. Never play back any anything for mm. the actors because mm. then they feel self-conscious. You mm. know, they always ask you, "Can I see that take? Can I see it?" And that was something I learned. You know, like I said, two thousand and one. So all the things I learned in film school also let me know, and and throughout my career that that would be a horrific idea to give the subject any any kind of input at all. But also, Rem was, you know, from the beginning, never... It, once once he saw that I had a, I had a good uh, concept that he thought was valid and added to, the let's say, the public's understanding of him and his work in a meaningful way, he just gave me his time and he never made any kind of uh, demands or, you know, wanted any kind of decisions. He just did it. You know, and that's to his credit. You know, that was absolutely yeah. the first time he saw it was at the premiere in Venice. Yes, that's right. And I, I remember seeing this this wonderful photo on your Instagram of you and him on this red carpet. What was his reaction? Yeah, so no, it was interesting. He Rem saw, and I don't know how often that happens, but Rem saw the film with the public for the first time. And honestly, his reaction wasn't super positive the first time. And it, it definitely wasn't bad, you know. He he said, had the usual response of, you know, I'm proud of you. This is great being at Venice where I've, you know, worked and blah, blah, blah. But in terms of the film, his first comment was, there's too many shots of me. At first, you know, there's a temptation to say, well, did you see the title? You know, like, <laughs> or it, it's, it's kind of it's kind of obvious that there has to be shots of him. You know, I, in in a way, I try to actually shoot him, and especially just like close ups of his face, you mm. know, as little as possible. Uh, that's also why I went for the sh- angle from behind a lot, so yes. you could see what he's seeing rather than seeing him all yes. the time, and kind of creating this iconic face, you know. His reaction at first was was understandable for a human being, and it's in a kind of aversion to yourself. You know, I, we all have. I, I, I hate hearing my own voice. I hate seeing myself on camera, and so I think that was a natural response. He's since that point, he's seen it maybe four or five other times in screenings, and every time he has a more positive response. Until the last time, he really was happy and really commended it and and really had an interesting take on it and felt I think for the first time that it really adds something to people's understanding and I think that was really important for him because he worked so hard on certain aspects of his work but if you just read reviews and if you read architectural newspapers and stuff like that you would think he kind of ignores that aspect completely and I think that's a frustrating feeling for him and I think he's very happy that a film in a, in a in a sort of very organic way shows what's important to him and what he thinks about and i think by the last time he watched a film that's what he was focused on rather than just the shots of himself yeah and it, it totally i recall this particular chapter on celebrity right. which i think is enormously insightful right. as as a scene in him and practice and the state of architecture right. it's it's fascinating it's a real pleasure to talk to you thomas you know it, it is a very, very good film, and it will stand the test of time. So thank, thank you. you for making it. That. Thank you very much, James. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with ARC Daily. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.